0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to the second Architecture series. My name's Jack. Um, and first of all, I'd like to, M Pavilion would like to acknowledge the Willem people of the Boonwurrung language group. Um, whose country we're lucky enough to talk on today. Um, so this is a very loose, formal, informal, loose, formal, loose, informal conversation. Um, and I've got a few sort of background questions just to sort of get us going. But we're, we're talking about storytelling, which at first might not seem hugely related to architecture, but um, I, I think it, it is a lot. Um, for me, uh, yeah, our interpretation of the world that we live in is often communicated through stories and often in the, in the most kind of, in the strongest way. Stories is sort of how we respond to things kind of um, quite deeply. Um, and it's, a, it's an avenue to sort of engender empathy and build relationships with, with other people, but also with, with country and with um, landscapes and, and, and rivers and the places that we build. Um, so yeah, we're just going to explore explore story, storytelling processes, our own stories, other people's stories, how we express them in architecture, and how how the relationships and stories that we that we carry help, um, yeah, di- direct our practices. I guess. Um, so, yeah, start off. Do you guys want to just introduce yourselves?
2: Um, my name's is France Lane. I am a co-director of Indige Design, which is a um, architectural and design practice based in Cairns Uh, my husband Andrew Lane is the architect Um, I'm an interior designer and I also create textiles and sculptural furniture pieces and um, it's kind of like the design part of our practice Um,
0: and we're 100% indigenous owned and operated Hi, um, my name's Marita Dyson. I'm a songwriter. Um, So the stories that I tell are usually through songs. um, And I write these songs with my partner, Stuart Flanagan. And I also draw. And the, the drawings that I do are often in response to songwriting and storytelling. And I've had the amazing opportunity this year to work with both Jack and Tanya on projects um, that were about place and storytelling and architecture and um, infrastructure and and it's been amazing. So I feel very humbled to be here. Um, So
3: my name's Tanya Baer and um, I'm an ecological designer and community artist. Um, I guess I call myself a spatial designer. Space is in many ways my medium, Um, but I come from a background of theatre and performance design, so I worked as a stage designer for many years, and it's all about story. Um, It's all about how, like I used to call myself a visual storyteller or visual spatial storyteller, so story is the key. Um, But in the last five years, I've been moving out of the theatre and into public spaces and really bringing my... Um, I guess what you call in stage design practice a scenographic lens um, to thinking about space and place. And, um, and Marita um, also was part of um, the Living Pavilion, which is a project that I did at the University of Melbourne earlier this year, which was a temporary event space that forefronted indigenous knowledge systems and Wurundjeri place. Um, also really grateful to be part of this conversation.
1: Thanks guys. Um, I just thought we'd start with an open question, whoever wants to answer it Um, and just understanding how storytelling influences your practice. Um,
2: Yeah, I'll start. Um, One of the um, services that our practice offers is around community engagement um, for built environment projects. And one beautiful project we were involved in uh, a few years ago was a streetscape um, revitalisation project in Cairns, of one of their main streets. And the focus of that particular street was to be on Indigenous um, themes. And we were... um, part, Part of our involvement was to engage with the traditional owners and the Indigenous people who call Cairns home. Um, Because there's lots of different clans and nations who have ended up in Cairns. Um, So the community is broader than the Indigenous traditional owners of that area. Um, Something that was really beautiful through that was the respect given by Indigenous people who aren't traditional owners of that area to those who were. And they really put them, the themes that they saw were important before their own. Um, And then again, the respectful way in which the traditional owners, they, they saw their place as being instrumental in that engagement process. But they also recognised that there were people who, um, through decisions made by past governments, ended up being in Cairns and calling it home. And they wanted them to be represented through that space as well. So there was just this beautiful um, respect given from different parts of the Indigenous community. Um, There were challenges, but overall so many positives. One of the traditional owners spoke about the, the clans of the area having these waterways. So whether they were um, peoples living up on the tablelands or on the coast, coastal area, that you had this network of rivers that ran down the mountain and in that Cairns area. And she spoke about the waterways connecting the people of that area. And I thought that was really beautiful. And that sentiment was echoed across the different groups that we spoke with. Um, we were able to integrate that as a design element into that streets, into that streetscape. Um, so, I, you know, and there's a lot more that was integrated into it. But that's just a simple example of how um, you have this beautiful narrative connecting people to... To country through those natural elements.
0: Well, I was going to build on um, what you've just been speaking about with waterways, but also throw to Tanya about the Living Pavilion project with the Bouvery Street Creek, which um, some of you may be familiar with this story. And this is a Wurundjeri story that um, I learned from Tanya and the Living Pavilion team about the eels that migrate from the Birrarung up Elizabeth Street, then up into Bouverie Street. There was once a waterway there and it's fed by a wetland that's in the middle of Melbourne University where the Oval um, is situated. Now this is a story that I've lived, I was born in in Melbourne, I was born next to the Birrarung in 1978 in a hospital called the Mercy Hospital, which isn't even, doesn't exist anymore. And I guess what this, learning this story did for me personally, is that it really connected me to something much, much bigger and much older, thinking about how I was born next to that river that the eels have always traversed the eels still traverse those waterways, even though they've been put underground into drains and covered over. So even just today, the power of that story, as I was riding down Swanston Street, and there's a manhole cover every 10 metres, it's most likely a water pipe or a drain. As you head down to the river, you can feel that whole landscape and the camber of, of the land of this place. And so that story makes me remember where i am all the time and the power of that story is not only um, something good to know and interesting but it it continues to affect my way of being in this place so that story um, in response to that story i've done a drawing and written a song um, but continues and will continue to um, inform where I am and and who I am in this beautiful place. Um, So just following on from that and and the
3: work that I did on Living Pavilion, um, what we were really fascinated about are the stories that are underneath the pavement and the bitumen and the land that's that's still there but it's just covered over. And um, how do we get back to understanding that land? So, from an ecological perspective, it was about understanding the flora and fauna that used to be there, in particular that site, Um, and we did that by very much doing a landscape architecture design um, of bringing 40,000 Kulination plants, and all of those plants were painstakingly researched by Zena Cumston, who was our lead researcher on the project, and Charles Solomon, who is a landscape designer. And they really forefronted, you know, what plants, as much as we could know, were there on that site, um, which took a lot of research. So there's that ecological aspect, I guess, um, which also speaks to biodiversity and, and um, flows within the system. Um, but then what Zena was really uncovering through her research as well was the um, the cultural stories that relate to those ecologies. So how... Again, we don't know, right? So it's only what we... Um, so through her receipt research, she's just um, trying to kind of navigate what could have been there based on what we do know. And, um, but, it, but what she had found was that was definitely... Um, because it was an eel site, that probably would have been a place where cultural ceremonies would have taken place and things like that. So, um, and so many people traverse that site, which is covered over in pavement... ...with piped underneath and know nothing about this story. So they're not connect. ...they're walking through and they're not connecting at all. Um, and so once we also work with um, a wonderful graphic designer... ...Dixon um, Patton, who... Um, ...Indigenous graphic designer... ...who um, then created a pattern um, based on that story... And, um, ...and then that became the story of the place... ...as you walk down that thoroughfare... Um, but, yeah, to me the layers of story, um, we, don't, we don't value it enough and certainly in Western culture um, we've kind of really forgotten how important stories are and we need, we need to bring them back because um, stories are what galvanise us as humans, you know. It's really integral. And um, So working on Living Pavilion and being a First Nations-led project um, was a massive learning curve for me, understanding how... Um, those stories can be forefronted. And for me, it was, um, I think the biggest learning curve for me as a designer was taking a step back. Um, It wasn't my story to tell. Um, It's only, for me, it was my story, only it was there, it was, I guess, the story to be told from an Indigenous perspective and from a Wurundjeri perspective, and it was just my place to support. That's what my job was. Um, So, um, yeah, a big learning curve on, on that front.
1: Yeah, I think it's um, really important to remember that we we all carry our own stories as well, and Australia is made up of <coughs> um, a whole range of people. We're all quite displaced, and you know, mm. m- the majority of the country is sort of migrants that all bring their own their own stories here. But then these these indigenous stories that sort of exist within within place that have been here for a long time. Um, it's yeah, it's really important to engage with with them. Um, the, with Indigenous stories, they're often embedded with knowledge and lore about place and, um, and protocol. Um, have you ever experienced those stories being romanticised or losing their depth or um, altered in a way? And if so, how, do, how does your practice find a way around this or, or embrace it?
2: I think about response to so that. I think about some of the engagements that we've been involved with and allowing conversation to happen when you when you um, approach or invite um, traditional owners to be part of the conversation being ready for what they want to share in that project um, is important and with Andrew and I have found in our role at times it's um, building a, like a bridge of understanding of why these narratives are important to be captured. So uh, another project we were involved in was for the Cairns Museum um, and one of the um, traditional owner groups wanted to tell that story, well, their past history of how their land was taken and they wanted some of the violent, um, the violent narratives that um, from members of their community who are still living to be included in that. And it was really shocking um, for um, for some for some of the management committee of that historical society associated with the Cairns Museum. To hear it, like it, it's different to know that it happened, but then to hear it from people who bear the consequences and live it a life affected by parents who were traumatised is 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 quite confronting. So um, I think it's um, we've been really privileged, I think, to be a part of just allowing the conversations to happen. And like you said, it's you you're part in the project is to, it's not to have your way as a designer, but it's to allow um, that community, that family, those family represented in those nations or clans to have their input. And, I, and it's really reflective of our culture, I think, where um, you want to respect their input and... You want to honour their contributions to that project. Um, mm.
1: <laughs> you guys, if you want to just um, respond directly and not wait for a question, just jump, jump on. Um, I think yeah, that's that's a really interesting point around the the, the, the darker stories, I guess, yeah. of Australia's history and how important mm-hmm. those are to acknowledge. And I think. That's often the major impediment to sort of building the richness that, um, and, and it's not just richness in in architecture or design responses, but in just in our lives. And that's mm. that connection to place. And often, mm. not wanting to sort of go through that, to look at those those darker stories, mm. it's really important to sort of like bring bring them to the to the forefront in order to move through them and then um, engage with all the sort of all the beautiful stories that exist there as well. Mm. Yeah.
3: I think. I, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I think what we, the whole living team, living pavilion team, which was a big, big team. Um, I think what everybody felt like, um, even that we needed to have hope in. There needed to be a sense of overarching that it was um, a celebration of that place and focus on the celebration of that place. That that I guess that was the overarching sense from the from the team. Um, and Mandy Nicholson, Nicholson who um, contributed a lot, um, who was our Wurundjeri artist on the project, um, she really wanted, um, so she opened um, the Living Pavilion and then she also closed the Living Pavilion. And um, so, closing night and opening night were really important. And it, at the end, she invited us all to dance together. Mm. Um, and we learned a dance, which was really beautiful. And it really felt like this moment of. Um, celebration and kind of um i guess a glimpse of what reparation could be um in that moment mm. it was just a moment you know we could obviously got a long way to go but just a glimpse was just really helpful hopeful i think on both sides yeah mm.
4: Mm.
0: and i think um in terms of being somebody who is creatively responding to um, to a place and to stories that are not my stories um, to tell in the sense that this is a story I didn't know before um, before it was told to me through Xena and through um, Wurundjeri people and to acknowledge whenever I tell that story that it is a Wurundjeri story and that this is um, a story that has been... In this place for such a long time, and i I felt like um, it, I'd been walking around and um, to quote a Deborah Bird Rose chapter that I read I'd been just bumping into things like just not kind of walking around without any sense of understanding of what of where I was and so every time that I remember that story and certainly when I tell another person I it's really important to acknowledge that that's a Wurundjeri story that I am that I have have had the privilege to be part of um, celebrating and to pass on as a Wurundjeri story that's that's my personal reflection of that process on that process
1: yeah something I found really um, interesting and Affecting doing the research that I was doing into the waterways was seeing how many of those stories are actually shared, and that those stories themselves travel the the waterways and throughout sort of different different countries, um, as though they kind of have a life of their own. You know, like you have one group has a story, and then there's that's a shared story, and he said, you know, and people like Uncle Larry talks about, oh, that yeah, we have the same shared stories, and it creates this kind of relationship, um, and yeah, I think, like, the translation of those of those stories into um, artworks um, and built environments, they either require representation, or what I found interesting about the Living Pavilion was, like, an, it was an uncovering as opposed yeah. to a sort of a building and, and creating, and then, you know, that's a process of creating a new story that we're engaging with. Um, mm. I was just wondering if you, anyone had any... Um, Experience around like ma- trying to maintain the integrity of stories, like through a process, because I mean every built environment process, you know, is relatively bureaucratic. Like it'll start from uh, the point where the stories are heard or understood, or the, the research, and then to get to the place of um, representation, just seeing how those stories may maybe change or how they're expressed in in design. Um, yeah,
3: I think I think for me, um, I mean, it was a very long well um you know there were a lot of people looking at the design um and it was really important that in a way i i learned to take a step like as i mentioned before and take a step back in the design and and xena just said to me um it's all about the plants the plants um we don't need to over design it let the plants speak for themselves you know so for me, it was um in some ways a more minimalist approach. It wasn't about... It. And she said, you know... Um, she said, you know, I don't want... It's not about decoration, right? It's Everything's got to have meaning and everything has to be there for a reason um, from an Aboriginal perspective. And if I don't... If we don't see why it's there and it doesn't have a really strong relation to place and context and history and, and present, um, then it's gone. So that... ...got rid of lots of things straight up, you know. It was like, well, that would look nice and pretty... ...but no, no, it doesn't make... ...it doesn't it doesn't tell the story... ...or it's not part of what we're trying to do. Um, she also made... Um, ...the other thing that she spoke about was... Um, ...we're not trying to pretend... ...that the Kulin Nation plants were always there. We're not covering up the colonisation. We're actually... ...because the plants were in temporary containers... ...and it was quite obvious that they were in contemporary containers... Um, and she said, "No, I want them to be on display. I don't want people to think that this is that we're covering over this colonised landscape." So that, in a way, is another kind of aesthetic that I hadn't even thought about. My 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 first thought was, "Let's try to make the like make it look like the plants are not in containers." And then she's like, "No, no, 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 no. We've got to be we've got to keep that there as part of the story." But interestingly. Um, and landscape architect, a non-indigenous landscape architect, um, aesthetically did not like it, right? So he, he felt that it should be covered up. <laughs> um, so it's interesting how different aesthetics play a role here. But for me, it's again, um, it always had to. And this is the thing that, again, going um, speaking, um, you know, some qu- a quote that Zena has said many time and time again that if you make it right for Aboriginal people, um, then it's right for non-Aboriginal people too so um that's always been that's been the way that we went with the living pavilion make it right
2: for that first
3: and then it'll be right for everyone
2: yeah Yeah. i think of um another example um where in cairns on our boardwalk um, there are landscape design has included these beautiful framed views on country and it captures a framed view of a storyline and indigenous people who know so people from that country who know those sacred stories will know what is framed in those views and that's integrous and it also respects the sacredness of some of those stories that sometimes it it doesn't have to be shared, but Indigenous people will recognise exactly what's being framed. So some of those frames are um, really large, like six by three metre frames, structural frames. And others um, are little cutouts in um, the old wharf that used to, pylons that used to be in that area that were reused. Um, And just little cutouts big and it captures a view you know maybe 40 kilometres away but um, there is a story to that view Um, and I think that's really beautiful.
1: Yeah it's like a using design as a way to sort of platform um, the stories Mm. that are there and also the stories that the people who use the space carry in the same Mm. way that you know, you're platforming the the, the stories of, of the plants rather than trying to impose. Just mm. allowing allowing those stories to exist.
4: Mm.
1: Yeah. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you, Marita, about your mapping process because um, you you researched the waterways of the of the West for a, a long time and had a, a really interesting way of mapping. And I think that that adds another <coughs> that the yeah having sort of stories and emotional responses sort of incorporated into mapping that, is, uh, that is, is different to the sort of conceptual, abstracted, sort of divided up, sort of simple um, way of understanding sort of land in an abstract way. Um, so if you wanna, can you tell us a bit about your process?
0: Sure, um, it's a bit of a story, but I guess because it's storytelling <laughs> um, time, then I'll tell the story of how these drawings, or how this way of, that I've been drawing came into my, my practice, I guess. I got a creative fellowship at the state library of victoria to write songs about waterways and part of that fellowship um you you get a desk in the library and a little office and i was really excited and thought it was excellent and it's the whole corridor had like a glass wall so i felt a bit fishbowly and people would walk past and i'd be like i better do something i'm doing um and i felt a bit self-conscious but also excited and responding to the whole space and also really unsure of what what i would even do so i just cut out a really big bit of paper and taped it to the desk and thought well i'll just as ideas come up i'll just write words or something on there and so i started looking at the map collections and um thinking about the waterways that I was interested in, particularly the confluence of the Maribyrnong and the Birrarung, which is a really important location, um, thinking about this place, because that's where, um, geographically, it's one of the lowest points in the in the city at the moment, and um, it's a point that's been really impacted by engineering works through time. The course of both the Maribyrnong and the Birrarung have been slightly altered. And there's been a lot of, um, there's a lot of historic buildings there, which are still there and speak to that planning and um, architectural history. And of course, to the, the growth of the city. So I started kind of drawing that those waterways. And then the more that I read and the more that I felt about the impacts that the both waterways had suffered because they'd been polluted, they'd been used essentially as drains. The original course of the Birrung had been rechanneled, and um, to make a more direct passage for ships, the original course of the Birrung was left to silt over, and that's right near where Cood Island is. I grew up just near there, so I r- was remembering the Cood Island chemical fires when chemical storage tanks caught on fire. I was thinking about the sewage system that flows underneath the city, and I work at a museum that. it that, um, looks after the sewage pumping station site. So I was thinking about all of those things and began drawing all of those locations on the map and then cross-hatching in between when I'd get a bit anxious and unsure and I'd just be like, I'll just cross-hatch or I'll just draw. I learned more about plants that had been growing in the area. So then I began to draw those in and I also to draw emotional or and write emotional responses and lyric ideas. So then the map became... a Place to kind of collapse space and time, history, my own kind of personal responses could go into that map. And before I knew it, after a few weeks, I had a really large drawing. So then I thought I n- enjoyed that process, and I just made a n- new one. Um, the next day, I put a new bit of paper out and began that process again. So it's something that's a new way of drawing for me, and. Um, it's something that I really enjoy. I want to do that more. And um, it's a very open way for me to work as opposed to in the past where I would think, well, what do I want to draw? And then I'd try to draw it. This was a way of going into a blank space and thinking and allowing it to fill up with a whole lot of information that may not cartographically and historically all sit in the same space, but it sits in the same space in my head, I guess, and in my, my heart.
1: Um, on the topic of sort of different ways of mapping space I guess um, Tanya, I was just wondering if you might want to elaborate on that a bit with in terms of theatrical sort of stuff and you know moving through space is there anything in your practice that's um
0: yeah
3: um I guess um as a spatial designer, I'm, I'm used to working with lots of different scales. Um, I'm really interested in um, how we think multi, in a multi scale way, which, which can be done through mapping as well. But it's like how, you know, right now, how this place and space relates to the, you know, the city, to the, uh, you know, the inner city, to the greater Melbourne, um, to Australia, to the world. So I like to think on, um, try to th- zoom in and zoom out. ...to try to make sense of things... ...which is a bit like your mapping process as a way. Um, and um, I try m- more and more... ...I mean I was a trained as a theatre designer... ...which is a very visual medium. Um, and I was trained to create a world in a black box... ...in most cases. Um, which probably wouldn't be much bigger than the size of this space... ...if probably a bit smaller. And my job was to create a world um, of the play, whatever the play was. So I had to set the scene in multiple different locations and um, sometimes the the set and the location had to transform in 30 seconds. So, um, you know, there's a lot of thinking through time and space when you're a stage designer. Um, um, Different kind of um, parameters than being in a public space where you've already got, you know, um, a much stronger connection to history and... And people and place, whereas in the theatre in a black box, you can kind of pretend that you're not in a place, which is a problem, you know, because I feel like that gives you a license not to consider um, the the kind of um, yeah depth of place. Um, but yeah, I'm I really love the challenge of um, taking over a, a space that is unloved and underutilized and Thinking about how I can make it a loved space. Um, I, I enjoy that challenge even though it it's really, can be really, really hard. Um, and how does that work is always interesting. But um, that's where, particularly now when I work in public spaces, I'm trying to understand, well, there must be something here that gives that place, space, potential. Um, I just haven't found it yet. Um, but through that kind of uncovering of, of research and history and even just for me, sometimes it means just I'm just sitting there and I'm meditating on the space. I'm just sort of sitting there trying to understand it um, and trying to work out how that space speaks to me or how it doesn't speak to me. Um, but I definitely feel like if you, ch- you can change the vibrations of a space or the vibe of a space, it's hard to kind of understand or talk about it in a scientific way. But I think you can change um, the feeling of a space through design and through really strategic and and authentic design and and programming. Um, I do think it is possible. Um, Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think that idea of creating or designing spaces to be loved is a really Mm. important one Um, it's not like a word we often use in built environment but that's kind of what you're going for I think is a a place that the people who use it and occupy it really respond to and I think in um, in Australia, that's often where the discrepancy has been between designing—we're well not designing for Aboriginal people and, and Aboriginal people—but often a lot of the, the spaces that we have traditionally designed have not been welcoming for Aboriginal people or those stories, and that's kind of you're confronted with a lot of, um, yeah, stories that you don't want to be confronted with, or or just you know the stories that you carry aren't sort of aren't aren't, a, aren't as welcome. Um. Fran, I was wondering if you could, yeah, respond. Elaborate. Elaborate.
2: Um I, I think of a really hopeful, just just really fed my spirit project um, that we were, we partnered with, um, pod architecture with. Um, it was a project that went over nine years. We worked with Synapse, which was formerly known as um, the Queensland... Uh, brain Injury Association um, and we created a eight bed uh, supported living facility um, for people with acquired brain injury in Cairns. Um, so the the facility consisted of a central facility um, for the occupants to do shared cooking in, to do activities in, um, to learn like just living skills and then they had their own independent um, units. Uh, they were in the form of g um, units. As an interior designer, my role on that project, well, I was invited to be a part of it to bring um, that connection to the environment and I pondered on what that would look like. The intake of clients uh, were Indigenous and for one of those clients, they had been in a hospital for over three years because they couldn't find somewhere to live where they had the supported, um, that support that they required with with their acquired brain injury. Um, Which is really sad if you think about it, living in a hospital in the confines of, you know, a bed, maybe sharing a room in a public hospital, getting woken up all the time. Um, So it was really, really tragic. Um, Anyhow, this space that was created or the the methodology that I brought with the interiors was about um, thinking about where that intake group could possibly come from. Um, in years to come, and, and then, so I thought about the country um, and what it looked like around the region, and so the way that I tried to bring that country in um, was through um, the selection of materials and finishes um, for for the interiors and the colour scheme externally. Also, um, the the um landscape architects landscape designers um were an aboriginal business called agriculture and they bought into that and then expanded it on onto that um idea um and they selected indigenous plantings um from the region as well Uh, and the beautiful thing is is that the the planting attracts wildlife bird life um, so not only do you have colour linking both internally in finishes, but then in plants, then you get the smells. So there were medicinal plants included. See um, The um, signal planting, which, like, for example, you have um, bottle brushes that flower. When they flower, um, it signifies the time that you go crab hunting. Um, so some beautiful references to connection to place through that and to um just activities that you do on country um yeah so there's just been some terrific outcomes of um um clients within the facility um coming off medication completely for some because they were in an environment where they um felt safe and welcome um and they could Connect back to the surrounds again. That's beautiful.
1: Mm. Yeah. Um. I think all the words I've written down here are just statements. So I might see if anyone in the crowd has a question now. Um,
5: I like the word you used of uncovering. Because years ago, 2014, I went to an art and design fair, or whatever it's called, I forgot the exact name, at the exhibition, old exhibition building next to the museum. And the person that won the big art surprise was, (laughs) surprise prize, no, the biggest art prize, was from Singapore. And she was an artist that had uncovered the waterways, Mm. taken the cement off. And so she wasn't an eco-activist, she was an artist. And she won a prize for doing that. And everyone was behind her in her environment. And, of course, that uncovered, like you said, the word uncovered, and I love that, because it uncovered the history and the stories behind the waterways. So I think that's wonderful if Marina and others who have mapped the waterways, and then they hurry up and uncover the Elizabeth waterways, (laughs) and we can (laughs) see (laughs) the water again, and then it activates people to clean them up and enjoy them. So I think that's wonderful, the word uncovered. Great. But what was my question? Yeah. <laughs> Who's working on it? <laughs> That's what I
0: wanted to know. I'll join in. Whatever they're doing. I think a lot of people are working on it at the same time. And I'm sure there's people in the audience. And I know Jack's working on it with Resistance Transmission. It's, it feels like there's a lot of discussion. Tanya, you've worked on Boevery Street Creek Story. I feel like there's a lot of people thinking and talking about this at the moment, so I think it's happening collectively. Um, there's a lot of um, sharing of this, this, um, this kind of research and thinking at the moment. But also, I I would like to backtrack and pay my respects t- to all the people who've been fighting for the waterways long before I even knew many of them were still flowing. Particularly, people who've been protecting. Mooney Ponds Creek and Merry Creek and of course all the, there was a lot of activism in the 1970s in Melbourne that has set um, us up to kind of respond um, at this point in time because a lot of those waterways were protected from having freeways um, completely obliterating them.
3: Um, in terms of Boovery Creek, there is a plan to daylight it um, at least one section of it. It's a big engineering undertaking. Um, so I, n- I don't know where they're at with it, but they definitely, there's definitely a big call f- at least to try and see if it can be done. Um, so there's a start. I do think Elizabeth Street should be a waterway. And it always wants to be, doesn't it? Like, these stories show up. That's the thing that I think is amazing. Elizabeth Street, when it rains, it floods. It's telling the land is like and is telling us that it's it's not meant to be what it is currently. So again, that that goes back to listening. You know, that's a form of listening, isn't it? Because, because um, living systems do show themselves to us, and um, we just need to, um, yeah, be more aware of those things. Listen to their stories. Mm, listen to the stories. Yeah.
1: Just in case anyone didn't know that the Elizabeth Cri- Elizabeth Street used to be a big waterway and it's been covered over and it's f- lots of problems with leakage and stuff. Um, mm. Melbourne Design Week next year will uh, the waterfront program. I'm not sure if there's anything on that, but there was a fair, there was some last year. So yeah, keep an eye out if you want to learn more about the waterways of Melbourne. Some of it. Um.
6: <laughs> Some of us are old enough to remember either personally or seeing people wading through it oh. it's actually a really it, it's cyclical um, oh. that it floods and you know if you go back and read from a white person's history, the history of that whole space is what a nuisance it's been. <laughs> um, I wanted to make a comment from my perspective that I think it's really hopeful what's your Put forward tonight, um, and that as someone who's always been interested in story and intersectionality, um, the difference between 50 years ago when I was a child was that not only didn't we know these things, but the the sense of paternalism and authority in whiteness was just—I didn't even think about it. It wasn't something that was pervasive. It just was, just was. Whereas. 50 years on, this sort of conversation really makes you appreciate that, in fact, it is our combined history that makes us where we are today. And the conversation around the um, Cairns Project where I can imagine, and it might be a complete wrong imagining, but of sort of picture frames that you can see out into country uh, that I can appreciate through my language and, and experience and so on and yet the deepness and richness as you uncover to use the language of before. So it seems to me that we're turning a, a corner with your generation which is my children's generation that helps us actually understand that we have shared history and respect and mutuality and that it, it sounds like we're going to have a really I hope I live to see the whole, whole uncovering.
7: So um, with your community engagement processes you'll be um, connecting with elders and traditional owners and other respected members of the community um, When it comes to hearing those stories and how they're um, going to be translated into designs how do you know that those members of the community are actually respected and that their stories are the ones that you know are going to be reflected in the pieces and that the community that, the, well, the extended um, Indigenous community in that particular area are going to respond to those stories, whether it's going to be like, oh, um, yeah, that's part of my story, or whether it's that's that person's interpretation and we don't agree with that. Um, why were they picked for it? So how, how do you handle situations like that, um, knowing who is the, re- the respected um, people to share those stories?
2: To Do you, you me to answer That's a, question. <laughs> that is a, f- that's a fantastic that's question. It's a really fantastic question. Um, black politics is even more complex, I think, than white politics. <laughs> so, um, in the way that Indige design goes into engagement, we... Um, we do a lot of talking with different segments of a community. We really put forward to our client that we need time. If we're going to undertake engagement, we need time to undertake it in the right way. Um, you can go to um, land councils and find out who the representatives are. It doesn't always mean that those representatives speak for a clan or a nation of people or that they're respected. So there is this um, exploration of um, trying to, to engage with as many or a broader section of the community as you can. You add to that the time constraints on a project and it's not always possible... Um, to have the amount of time you really, really need. So it's like you have these competing priorities and as an Indigenous woman, it's really... I know Andrew finds this just as challenging. Um, You just have to do the best that you possibly can. Um, You test out um, recurring themes or narratives to see if others relate to that as well. So you can, you're always testing what you hear to see if others um, agree or disagree with it. Sometimes you can see that there's, real, there's absolutely difference of opinion. So then you look at what the common, the common um, contributions are and you try and find a common ground that you can work from. And then through our process um, with designs that we've done, you have this collecting of information and then you take it back, um, like we use it to form an expansion on the brief and then we take that back to those groups again. And so in cases we can be working with elected councils who know the community, you can be working with respected elders across... Disciplines within the community, so from health um, to community services um, to elders groups. Um, elders groups actually are always referred back to, so they um, they hold, um, I guess, the they hold culture and guide all those. Um, younger than them or following behind them um yeah so there, there's there's a process there in just collecting that information and then there's once you've collected that information and they say yes you've captured that then there's a process of translation translating that into design form so on paper and sketches or perspective views of spaces then you take it back as a process of validation to see, have we actually captured what you were talking about? Um, So there's steps there in that, just continuing that open communication. Um, But I think you're not always going to make everyone happy and we're prepared for that. But what we stand on is that we have um, engaged with as many of those leaders and taking it back to elders for that blessing, um, and and will we stand on that? Is that is that sufficient? Okay. Did you want to add to that? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I totally
3: agree with what you're saying. As um, as a non Indigenous person working on a Indigenous led project. Um, it was really challenging and there's a lot of politics that I obviously had never met before. So trying to navigate that um, was really hard. Um, it was definitely a challenging project, there's no no doubt it. The thing is, for me, um, while it was a challenging project, um, it was the most rewarding project I've ever done. So, it, you know, it. there's so much... Um as a non-Indigenous person, there's so much to learn and um, to learn about how you work and navigate that situation and I'm just at the beginning of that journey, you know. I've still got so much to learn about it and um, I just had a debrief with Zena today about all the things we could have done better, um, which is good because then I know, okay, these are the things that we need to to put in place and a lot of it's structural. and what we were talking about is time. Time came up time time and again. Like it was this sense of how Western structures or, or institutions, I should say, and that's not just universities, but institutions um, don't allow time for proper indigenous nego- you know, an indigenous consultation and, and participation. And um, this was something that we were constantly, um, you know having a problem with that we, we, we needed always needed more time um, so that is something that i would take for the next project is allowing space and time for these things to be done um, you know with as much um you know which is with the, as much integrity as as possible um, yeah so i think that the other thing is like what i really learned is um that it's important is the specificity of place and who, whose country is it? Because as a non-Indigenous person, um, you know, that's a really important factor that we don't always talk about, right? Um, and really, we really should think of Australia as Europe, you know. It's got many, many, many countries that are very different. And, um, and so because it was a Wurundjeri place, um, it was really important that Mandy Nicholson was an artist because she's Wurundjeri and she um, is also a knowledge keep- keeper. Um, and very connected in the community, um, but also very open. Um, and she's an artist as well. Um, so we, she saw the designs um, at multiple sta- stages because we wanted specifically a Wurundjeri perspective. But I, we didn't have the opportunity to take it... Um, you know, we, we did have it part of a consultation process where it was put forward... By the university to the elders but it wasn't I didn't feel like it was they just put it forward on behalf of us that was the way that the institution operated but it wasn't but really Xena needed to be in the conversation in there in the room you know and that wasn't allowed so sometimes these institutional structures are not conducive um, and it means that some uh, you know that our Aboriginal collaborators don't always feel safe you know the cultural safety is not always protected and that's something that we really need to think about um, yeah, I think that's... But, yeah, lots lots to learn and lots to reflect on. Um, there was something else that I thought about, but I've forgotten now. it might come back.
1: Um, yeah, I just wanted to elaborate on that as well. When it, it, To me, it's about um, allowing values to drive the outcomes rather than the other way around, which is what those cultural protocols are about. They're about protecting um, cultural values. They're about protecting respect and protecting those cultures. And if you follow those protocols and you sort of do... Each step with as much sort of as you said integrity and respect, then you, you, that's how you you get to your outcome. As opposed to sort of that's the outcome we want, and we're going to bulldoze bulldoze our way to the end, whether that's in in architecture or whatever process yeah. you're in. And you have to allow you have to have the um, to not have the ego to step out of it and go like yeah. I'm happy to let go of what my intent is because it's going to be driven by the by the process.
3: Um, yeah, as soon as. Um So in this project, everything that was in the space was designed um, by an Aboriginal person. So all I did was coordinate and support. Um, I think this was my my least designed project. So in a way, even though I was helping hold it all together and bring it all together, um, yeah, I didn't design anything, actually. I just helped support the design, yeah. So that was definitely, as a designer, really... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> interesting process, yeah. Uh,
4: you, Thank you for your talk. I might have missed this because I was a little bit late, um, but I'm interested in the navigation of uh, accessing and seeking stories at, of place, particularly for, like, um, the project that was around here and the way that that might be like paid for and like the use of career advancement that's often stayed within white institutions and then what's kind of siphoned out as knowledge and then if that's how's that's balanced, paid for, re like rent paid, yeah. And uh the yeah, the navigation of like career versus value. And who's really benefiting at the end of the day? Or like, yeah. Anyway, that's a half question.
3: Sort of, I think so. Um,
4: so um,
3: no, I think it's a really good question, and I think those things have to be interrogated um, more and thought about more. I mean, all our indigenous artists were paid um, what they, you know, what they they actually uh, quoted what they wanted to be paid. So, that was really important. They set the price. Um, Most of our budget, which was really small, um, went to... um, So, this was really a priority that all our money went to supporting our Indigenous collaborators first. So, that was number one. Um, If that meant that the design had to be a bit smaller or simpler in terms of products and, you know, um, services and stuff, um, that was... That was fine. It, that We had to find the money to make that happen. So um, that was certainly a big part of it. And then those of us that are at university, um, we, we sort of did it as part of our role at university, which was already a privileged position to be in, where you can do a project like that and essentially not seek extra payment to do it. Although it was very much an extracurricular project. Um, and important for us was Zena was the co-producer um, on the project. Um, and where possible, we kind of put... Her, well, we made sure that she was the one... If she wanted to, she was the one that was always on stage um, before us. Or she was the one speaking for... You know, about the project instead of us. So that was really important, making sure that we... Actually, Kathy and I, who were the other co-producers... When possible, took a step back, um, and I mean I know that it's le- it's led to lots of opportunities for Zena um, in terms of um, her career trajectory. Um,
2: yeah. I I that's a wonderful question. Um, I well, our practice we place value on the contributions of traditional owners that are engaged. So we. When we are approached by clients we will talk to them that just as you pay for a historian to provide consultancy to what that place was, know the history of that place, there should be also equal value placed on consultancy with traditional owners because their time is valuable, their information is valuable and in some cases it's ...what they have left is their stories of connection to country... ...and we don't want to be a part of exploiting that. So, um, but we want to advocate for placing value on that. And I think there will be more of that happening around the country... um, ...where that knowledge and continuation of culture... ...and how it changes as time goes on... um, that's respected and um, for a truly respectful, consultative process, there is um, a value, a monetary value placed on on that. Mm. Oh no, <laughs>
7: <laughs> back again. <laughs> I'm her daughter, by the way. <laughs> um, so I just have one last question, I swear. Um, I was just wondering if university prepped you on how to engage with um, local Indigenous communities, because obviously each community is going to be different in how you engage with them. Um, Was there any, like in your university courses or your studies where you were prepped or um, had any research on how you connect um, with communities and knowing the trust and the respect that's involved? Or did you have to learn on the way by yourself um, or with other people? And if it's not at university or in studies, um, would you recommend that universities and studies do bring that up as an important role if you're going into um, a career where, indig- where you're going to be communicating and engaging with Indigenous people?
2: Great question. Um, I actually think the Well... It's <laughs> Yeah. I would actually like... Um, I don't know, maybe one of you would like to answer I know that Sarah even though you're not on the panel I know that you would be able to give um, more insight into that Um, I know that there are representatives indigenous um, um, lecturers designers um, like I think of of Jeefer at um, University of Melbourne um, that he's been um, uh, involved in indigenizing I think and you may want to correct me Sarah but um, um, bringing that aspect into into the architectural school um, and there are other indigenous architects around the country who have been employed by universities to bring that indigenous perspective um, I know that when I was at uni it, it was not taught um and for me, it's been I've really taken for granted just how much I, um, I guess, what knowledge I had in that space. And um, however, as I've practiced and as I've done work with indigenous communities, um, I, I, you know, of course, I've grown up around family and what learning all the time what is respectful, knowing that because I'm. Um, I've grown up with a very strong Torres Strait Islander connection to culture um, that I I do not have all the answers and I do not have the knowledge for other Aboriginal nations. And even within the Islander culture, there are, you know, there's there's different groups there as well. So I knew I was not to be speaking for others. So I knew that respect. Mm. Um, So there's been a lot of, um, I guess, just... Just being taught, well, I have a great mother. He's taught me how to respect others and other, other, (laughs) yeah. So I I recall even being on country when one of their leaders died suddenly and I was with, um, at that time I was working in government and colleagues believed that they should stay in that community whereas there was another colleague of mine who... um, was a daughter of a significant aboriginal leader in the country um but we both went we must leave here out of respect and let the country go into sorry well the going into sorry business but we could not stay and we both spelt felt that spiritual energy of the country telling us to get out and we had to get out we had to leave um so, yeah, just being taught, taught well there. And it's so wonderful to be able to use that and then share that with, with um, others in the field. Um, there's so much to, to just share. From a, from
3: uh, someone who's an academic, who's based at the University of Melbourne, uh, yes, we're doing... The, this thing's slowly happening. It's way too slow and... Um, I never had any training in this at all. I was lucky because um, one of my best friends growing up was Aboriginal. Um, So I think I had... She's my oldest friend I've known her since I was three years old. Um, And that's certainly quite a unique um, experience um, as someone growing up um, with with an Aboriginal friend. But also in theatre, I think there's more engagement. Um, So we do a lot of outreach theatre projects um, with with wider communities and that can be Indigenous communities. Um, Yeah, it's often in very different community contexts and and that's how I started engaging. But I was like, I had to learn on the fly, you know, and I got it wrong a lot because no one had ever taught me. Um, And... uh, I was really lucky because I worked with a theatre company called um, Coemba Jadara Performing Arts, which was based in Brisbane. And um, I did that early on in my stage design career. And and there were no... um, At that time, there were no Indigenous stage designers in the country. Um, So (laughs) I was around, so they invited me, and that was a big process because, of course, as a non-Indigenous person, I was... um, My job was to bring to life or spatialize, visualise Indigenous stories um, because there wasn't at that time. And this has changed, thank God, that there are now Indigenous designers that can work on these projects. But, like, that was also a really big um, learning curve um, and a really amazing process. But, yeah, it was, was, you know, very tough. Um, But, of course, all of the stuff that I designed was co-designed um, with the actors and the director and the writer, and everything was painstakingly done collaboratively um, to make sure that I was, you know, visualizing it um, in 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 the way that in which um, it was imagined, I guess, in the director's and the writer's mind. But it was I had to try to find my way to connect so that I could do it justice. Yeah, I think that was a really good training ground.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that as well. I, when I was at university in WA in 2014, studying architecture, there was n- no Indigenous engagement whatsoever. It wasn't a part of the curriculum. Um, and I think that was pretty common then, but it is cha- it's changing a lot and there's a, there, there is a, like a, a real sort of spread of um, you know, amongst the universities, to to incorporate that as sort of like as a given in, in sort of architectural education at least. Um, so I think we're in a, it's at, a, at a good good place, good point in that in that
4: regard.
2: I think, like he said before, we're in an exciting place. It's like a junction where you have all of these fresh um, designers coming up through the ranks, and um, it's exciting to see what these guys are, are going to do and. How they're going to change the, the way that um, um, Indigenous people are engaged with and then ha- what those outcomes are and how they're integrated into, into the built environment I think is really exciting.
6: Something that um, happened the other day, I was at a Resilience um, Cities training and the gentleman that was at the table with my group came from Melbourne University, and he has a role in imagining what the new campus for Melbourne Uni down at the doc, um, at Fisherman's Bend is. And it was fascinating because he was talking about sustainability and the fact that it could flood and so on, and, and myself and another person who are not Indigenous said, well, surely one of the first things you would do is to actually go back and ask the question of what that place looked like before. Because when I first came back to Melbourne and found myself drawn to Albert Park, I learnt that, in fact, what I was drawn to was the the shamanistic spirit that I have in myself from a different culture, but the the clan connection. And it was like, surely Melbourne University, who has an Indigenous knowledge officer, etc., that's one of the first places you'd go and yet, even in a, an environment where is supposedly indigenous radar is up. So there's an opportunity for those of you who sit within Melbourne Uni to go and actually be a bit agitative around an enormously fabulous campus opportunity to say we've gone so much further than 50 years ago when I was a little girl. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
2: I, th- I think of a project that we um, designed a few years ago now, another one of the past. But um, Andrew, um, he, he worked very closely with, um, well we both did, but with one of the indigenous lecturers in the School of Education, and for the siting um, and um, of, of the building where it was going to be placed on the land. It was discussed with one of the elders and um, our um, liaison, the the indigenous lecturer, who was um, engaging with with the traditional owners. He he conveyed those questions that we had back to. So it was like this. Um, well, what would you call it? Um, It it was, he he was giving us that exchange of information, he was the the exchange, so um, the traditional owner told him how that building was to be orientated and how it was to be placed on that site. And the wonderful thing was, the way it was placed, only three trees were removed and they were all... They weren't indigenous to that area, so that was great. It was placed alongside a creek bed um, that when it was in wet season, it would run or flood, as they call it. Um, and with the last lot of floods, you may have heard about it in towns, although pretty catastrophic. Um, but that area did not flood. Um, so it was just fantastic. So that knowledge that this man had about that land, um, his. He was asked like, have you known this area to flood? And he's like, no. And the the, um, project manager from the university, um, from their estate office, they were all like, who did you talk to about this? It really messed with them that we're going, he said, blah, 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 and we're gonna go to him to find out where that location and orientation should be. This is the right way to do it. It's an indigenous outdoor learning center. We're doing it this way. Um, and we just stuck to our guns and um, advocated for the, for that input.
1: I think as well, um, just unfortunately, whenever there's big sort of developments going on, there's just a lot of people um, wanting, t- and there's opportunities to make a lot of money and a lot of people who just don't give a shit. So you have to be really smart about where you put your energy in terms of trying to get the right people to listen, so you can be effective. Because yeah, there's always people wanting to exploit those those developments. So mm. yeah. Sorry, I didn't want to end on that note. No, no, we
3: need a positive note.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? I, I just want to oh, end on just saying one one thing about storytelling again that I that I find. Um, really important in the face of and talking about optimism um, in the face of sort of climate change and lots of sort of negative stories that we hear which are not um, untrue but um, the way that we interpret the way that we interpret a lot of those kind of stories, they their they're warnings, their targets, their figures, their abstract, their you know it's, it's a lot of doomsday and it's difficult in that, in that environment to start to care for the place that you're in because it can often seem sort of pointless um, and for me, hearing, hearing stories about, about place and, um, and the places that we live in, um, that's the important thing is it creates that relationship and empathy with the place that you're in. So you're actually motivated to, to, to care for it. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I would encourage people to try and um, find out as many stories as they can about the places that they live in to and help sort of everyone to st- start taking on that sort of custodial, custodial role and to care for the country that we live in.
3: Yeah. Just want to add one of the, the, the most rewarding things that I did this year was I took over a sustainability subject um, that I ran at Melbourne Uni. And the first thing that I did was um, include indigenous knowledge systems um, as like the thing that we did in, you know, s- essentially in the first couple of weeks. Um, and I got Zena to come in and give a lecture and we, and look, we have a lot of international students, so this is all very new for them. And we prescribed Deborah Rosebird's um, uh, text, which was a really good introduction, um, particularly to our non-Australian um, you know Australian students. And um, and then we went to the Footscray Community Arts Centre and they were doing the eel trap weaving. I don't know if anyone was part of the science gallery. That just happened to be... We, we basically made sure it was in the week that we could go. Um, so... Um, Byrne was running that, and and she invited us in, and I took in 65 of my students to do weaving um, as a way of understanding and and really trying to embody, actually, um, sort of the the knowledge that Zina had, you know, shared with us as well as the writings, and and that was really transformative. And all my students at the end um, all talked about that lecture and that week being the most transformative way of thinking about sustainability in a way exactly that that generated a sense of hope um but also a new way of thinking um about sustainability that wasn't i guess so mechanistic and sort of reductive and um yeah i know that i can't teach sustainability anymore without including indigenous knowledge systems that's the big aha moment for me um so yeah so i'm hoping that that will continue forward and more people will be doing that we really need it yeah
1: that's it thanks guys thanks for coming down and thanks to all our wonderful speakers
0: you're listening to an m pavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.